this is Jane Gunn, the corporate peacemaker and author of How to Beat Bedlam in the Boardroom and Boredom in the Bedroom. And this podcast is about how we can gain a better understanding of some of the aspects of conflict to help us lead happier and more productive lives. So I'm speaking today to Joanna Kolofsky, who is a mediator and mediation trainer with a particular interest in judicial education. And Joanna has a lifelong interest in cross-cultural communication. So, Joanna, good morning and it's good afternoon to you and welcome. We sound like the two Ronnies, Jane. <laughs> and let me just explain why I've said that, because Joanna is in Sydney and uh, I'm in London. So um, we're speaking at different times of the day. We're already cross-cultural, Joe. <laughs> That's right. I was about to make the same point. <laughs> Um, so, Joe, tell us, um, and may I call you Joe for the, for this interview? Yes, of um, course. Tell us how your interest in cross-cultural communication developed. Where, where did that particular interest come from? Jane, I am the daughter of, um, in the case of my parents, pre-war German Jewish refugees. And in the case of my grandparents who brought me up, post-war refugees. Yes. And when I was a little girl... I went home to my very elderly grandmother and she and I went shopping together and I spoke English and she didn't. So I was always the, um, the uh, communication head of the household. And on one very particular occasion, we went to a butcher not far from our place and he was waiting outside for us because my grandmother regularly went and picked up uh, chicken livers from him. Now I must tell you that, um, um, something like uh, 59 years ago, people in Australia didn't exactly go crazy over chicken livers <laughs> or any other sort of liver. I think perhaps a little calves liver might have been eaten in the bush yeah. in desperate moments. <laughs> and uh, as we arrived, the man in question was standing outside the door and he thrust the large and bleeding bag of livers at my grandmother who gratefully took it and turned to me and said to me in German, aren't they wonderful in Australia? they give you the food. <laughs> and I knew that what was happening was that he didn't want us in his shop. Yes. And I believe now that both were true, that it is possible to take meaning where you see it, as you understand it. Were my grandmother alive today, and that of course is impossible, she would probably still insist that it was a sign of the wonderful reception and the generosity of Australians. And I detected all the discomfort that that generation of Australians had with what I would broadly call people like us. And I didn't dislike him for it because I think I always saw it as something that had a kind of double edge. But there's a cross-cultural element to that, but also that that's something we talk about quite a lot in mediation, the role of assumptions, where she had a very different assumption than he did about what was actually going on in that piece of communication. Yes. And indeed, um, Jane, as you know, as a mediator yourself, we will never know which of us, my grandmother or I, was right. Yes. Yes. Um, was he, in fact, just making sure that this poor old lady didn't miss out on something that people would otherwise throw away? Was he, in fact, um, not wanting us there because we were odd and wore strange clothes and spoke an odd language? Uh, but be that as it may, Jane, I think what I'm really saying with that story and many others, 
that I grew up in a situation where because I was the first really fluent speaker of English in the family, uh, not counting, of course, my older brother, but he's a lot shyer than I am, and so I was always the spokesperson. I think I always saw things in that kind of double way, mm. and it made the whole field both fascinating to me, and it made it for me an imperative to understand and to help other people to understand just how critical is the role of communication when you can't make assumptions about the other person's worldview or, or, or beliefs or, or, or way of seeing the world. And, and don't you find it's true, Joe, that sometimes those people themselves don't know what their motives are? Yes, I think we're not, I don't think any of us very often um, worry, you know, worry consciously or, or consciously think about our motivation because I think we all are trapped in what I call the normative. We naturally assume that if we do it, it must be a sort of norm. Yes. But in fact, it may merely be our norm. Yes. And I think the role of the mediator very often is to assemble all the norms in the room and flush them out to see whether people can perhaps agree with one that they've never thought of agreeing with before or indeed whether a new set of norms needs to be identified which everyone can feel easy with. Yes. You know, how shall we speak to one another as a neighbourhood? How shall we do, the, do this matter of industrial disputation as a group of very different people? Um, how shall we go about it? What process shall we design? Yes. All of that, I think... Yes. It, uh, it goes beyond the idea that the way I do it and the way I propose we do it must be right. Yes. It's always a search, I think, for something that will accord, that will perhaps strike a chord with many different people. Yes. And what I was going to say is I find, I do find in mediation, in the context of mediation, people quite reluctant to do that piece of work, to search for these norms and work out what's the baseline, where are we starting from? Because in many ways, and I don't know whether that isn't a product of the English-speaking world, I suspect it's not, um, that, is, that involves in people's minds giving something up, even, you might say, yielding, ceding power. Um, and yet I think you become more powerful um, if you are able to speak with the other, not less so but people feel that they are giving something up. I mean, I've had discussions with people who resent um, covering their head in a synagogue or mosque and taking off their shoes at the door of a Japanese home. And when I ask them, you know, what do you lose by doing it? They actually can't answer the question. It's more that they are forced to assume a different mode of being, yes. one which costs them nothing to assume. Um, but one which still challenges, I think, their sense of identity. So I think we need to work very hard um, as mediators particularly to say to people, when I ask these questions, I am not questioning you at the level of your motivation or at the level of your identity. I'm asking you whether something else might not also work because this is very rarely an either-or and very often an also so, Joe, tell us um, about your work, how it's developed. You've worked quite a lot with two groups of people, I think, with, with the Aboriginal uh, people in Australia and then latterly with the ju judiciary. Yes, yes. Look, um, I'm a member of the National Native Title Tribunal, which um, many of your listeners, Jane, will know was established in the middle 90s in the wake of a very important case in British law, the case 
um, in which Aboriginal people were deemed not to have lost sovereignty when the Crown of England claimed Australia by raising the flag, um, uh, you know, at the time of first arrival, the arrival of the first fleet. Um, and that, uh, that case uh, is a, you know, that case established a native title as a, as a fact. Uh, replaced the idea of terra nullius, which was a legal fiction that there'd been no one here when um, when the British, when the English arrived. Um, and w once that happened, a tribunal was established in order to receive claims uh, for the return, the restoration or continued uh uh, somehow stewardship of land that had not in other ways been alienated. And that's a very complex set of um, legal principles, which I won't go into, but the most wonderful part of it as a member of the tribunal was mediating claims uh, by Aboriginal people uh, presented to the Crown uh, uh, as part of which they had to demonstrate their continued connection with this country. And I found that it was an enormous privilege and it taught me just how little I knew about the country in which I was born and grew up. And what would you say you most learnt from, from the Aboriginal people? Um, look, I think what I probably learnt was to appreciate that what I'd been told or what I'd learned or what little we were taught in schools was not the full story, that the full story of the expropriation of Aboriginal people in Australia is both shocking and amazing, um, and that there are there is a resilience among people which is truly remarkable, that people's continuing uh, legacy of culture, however tenuous and however attenuated by time and by uh, the expropriation that the, being driven from their country very often, driven from the very piece of land uh, on which they were uh, born, um, had persisted in the face of 210 years of, of, um, of white settlement. Yeah. And I just thought that was remarkable. And people had a generosity of spirit and a kindness and a kind of patience, which I found um, almost shaming, I think. You know, I was often in a hurry and they'd say to me, no, 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 dear, don't hurry. We've waited 210 years. Another few weeks isn't going to, be a, isn't going to make a terrible difference. And so there was a sort of humour about it. I think I learned that as well, that um, there is a, a way of using English which is not standard among Aboriginal people and it's now recognised as a dialect of English, Aboriginal English, um, and it is um, full of humour, mm. absolutely full of extraordinary expressions and, and humorous um, comments which really do, um, you know, set you back on your heels, I think, when you're in close contact. And so, in a way, there's an awful lot that these two communities who appear to be in a sort of continuous power struggle can actually learn from each other at a, at a very basic level about um, humour and humility. And um... Absolutely. And look, in one particular case, and I'll quickly tell you this, um, an Aboriginal man walked into the room in which we were having this mediation and he walked up to the old um, pastoralist at the other side of the table and he dropped a parcel of photographs in the other guy's lap and the guy looked at the, this particular pastoralist, looked in the photos and saw photographs of his own family, his own white family, 
cradling young Aboriginal children in the middle of a large group of Aboriginal people. Mm. And on the back of that photograph it said March Camp 1913 and then March Camp 1927 and March Camp 1935 Mm. and so on and so on. And it immediately changed everything. And he looked across the table and he said to the old Aboriginal guy, how did we lose touch? Yes. He didn't say, where the hell did you get these photos and what's (laughs) this about? He knew instantly that everything he knew about land and land claims and people being able to say this was my land before your granddad took it away from me was true and absolutely so. And so his first question was that beautiful question, how did we lose touch? And I think that's a wonderful question, Joe, because actually, thinking about it just immediately now, it applies to almost every mediation that you walk into. It's, you know, where did did the people lose touch? Because they were in touch at one stage and then it's all gone wrong. Yes, exactly. And it's it's a little like family mediation, which I don't do because I don't have the wherewithal. And I always say that I think family mediators... Um, leave commercial mediators in the shade. And I remember Sir Lawrence Street once saying, and he's our doyen of mediators in Australia, he said that he would rather do a mediation over $60 million than over a dividing fence. (laughs) Well, Uh, I can see his point. (laughs) Between neighbours. I think that um, in family mediation you, you find yourself wondering, and I see this in courts all the time, you know, these are people who were once in love who married full of hope or, you know, set up a household full of hope and and uh, hope for the future and who are now locked in this mortal combat. And you, you wonder how things got to where they were, how things got to where they are, and whether you can, in fact, at any level remind people of what it was like and whether that's a bridge across which they can even walk away from one another. And so quickly people forget, in a way, don't they, where they've come from. Yes, and, and, and the, the stories we then tell ourselves to make reality of the feelings that motivate us at any particular time then become a kind of truth of their own. And so whenever people say to me um, when I'm doing a mediation workshop, uh, you know, what do you do if people are telling lies? I usually say, and I say with complete um, uh, sincerity, that I have never gone into a mediation assuming uh, that people will lie, and I've never assumed that what people are telling me is a lie. I often think that people are telling their own version of the truth and it doesn't accord with the other person's, but that's like any motor accident. You know, ask anybody trying to take witness statements. Um, I don't see it as being any different. I did a wonderful course once with the police about um, uh, taking witness statements and and we were taken through a process where we had to remember back to something that happened to us maybe 10 or 20 years ago and it was a fascinating process because you remembered, as you say, your own version of the truth. But when yes. you were taken through this process, you could remember things in much more detail but the story you told yourself before that was completely different. Yes, and it misses it, it. It misses some very important points that you've yeah. somehow uh, that don't make a good story. You know, we're always saying that we should never let the facts get in the way of a good story, but we do tell ourselves very comforting things, and it's possible that that's a form of hope. Without that, we possibly couldn't go on. I mean, how do people go on after these terrible floods that are devastating Australia at the moment, yeah. in which people's children have been washed away before their eyes? Yes. Um, 
it brings back, you know, the horror of my own family story. And I have seen people go on and lead happy and productive lives. And so it says that what we say to ourselves um, to comfort ourselves is of enormous importance and those stories should also be left undisturbed. And, and that's one of the things we do in mediation in a way is to try and help people to live happy and productive lives and and if they do achieve that then they're transformed forever I think by the process. And, they, the, and in believing some of those histories need not be delusional. Mm. I think sometimes there are elements of delusion, you know, that I can delude myself that I didn't, um, you know, uh, trick you out of, you know, the $50,000 that were rightfully yours. And, you know, I can defend that even in the teeth of a, of a, of a, a charge by the police. And that's plainly at the level of delusion or confidence trickster behavior. But I think that ordinary people believe things which are often not able to be reconciled with what other people believe. But that doesn't mean that the dispute between them, the conflict between them can't be uh, broached and, if possible, laid to rest. Yes. So, Joe, t take us on and, and tell us about you're now working with the judiciary in, in Australia, which has been yeah. quite a powerful experience, I think. Yes, it has. It um, began a number of years ago when I did some workshops for a, one of our federal courts and they called me back to do further work and then different courts heard what I was doing and gradually this has turned into what I call another leg on my career. And I frequently talk about it as something which could not have emerged um, had I not been a mediator. Mm. Um, I was for many years a member of two tribunals, our Administrative Appeals Tribunal as well as the Native Title Tribunal, a total of 13 years. So certainly I had um, quasi-judicial um, experience because I was a judicial officer in those roles. But I'm not a judge and I'm not a lawyer. Um, so I joke that the reason that I can do this work with uh, judges is that I know just enough about the legal system, but not so much as to be a threat. So I always describe myself as a not, spelt with an applicant. <laughs> Because I'm not a lawyer, I'm not a psychologist, and, and therefore I'm certainly not a judge, so I don't threaten anyone. I can go and listen and observe and feedback um, on my own experience of what I might sometimes call a chaotic courtroom. Yes. So sometimes I find myself saying to judges, look, um, I know you're struggling at the moment, and often that's why I'm invited in, but I found your courtroom this morning chaotic. You know, you looked very uncomfortable. I found it hard to follow what was going on. Um, and I wasn't anyone involved in the process for whom it must be much more difficult because they're so nervous. Yeah. And we start with that observation and move through to how this might be addressed, starting from my simple human response to how it felt to sit in that room. And I think when we talked before, Joe, you were saying, you know, how for the judges, they, I mean, that's a world that's utterly familiar to them. But for, for many of the people coming into court, it's utterly unfamiliar. And we talked about it being something like being Alice through the looking glass. You know, you're in another world that is completely alien to you. And of course, being someone like a judge who's, that's their, their, day, their daily uh, routine, they wouldn't realise that at all. 
Not at all. And in fact, um, a, a wonderful Australian Greek poet described migration to Australia as arriving in a play in a darkened theatre in the middle of the second act and there are no more programs left on sale. <laughs> and I think arriving in a courtroom is often the yeah. same experience. Yeah. And a Solor it's Sir Lauren Street, who was Chief Justice of New South Wales, who says that it's a, it's a clever litigant who recognises the case in court as his or her own. Yes. Uh, because, uh, you know, you, you simply don't know how what, what began as a, an argument over some small matter suddenly takes on these proportions. So it does kind of escape from the grasp of the people whom it's meant to assist, both factually and, and um, in terms of process. So I think uh, today, Jane, I observed the chief judge of the drug court in New South Wales, which is one of our diversionary courts. And it was absolutely remarkable to see the judge speaking directly to parties right. uh, without the intervention of lawyers yeah. and applauding them and inviting everyone in the room to applaud if they'd spent another two weeks drug-free and handing out sanctions to people who didn't admit that they used cocaine last Sunday but now had a positive urine test. Um, and he said, well, you know what happens now. And this poor woman said, yes, I know, Your Honour, two sanctions. And he said, well, you know, when you get to 14, I have no more power. You go down for two weeks. And she said, yes, yes, I do know. I'm trying really hard. And he said, well, turn this to advantage. And I heard him speaking to her, in a, not in a tough love way, in the way in which perhaps the Americans might describe it, but as someone with compassion who worked within a tight framework. Yeah. And it was a very powerful experience. He sounded for all the world like a trustworthy um, a adult in your life who held you to your promises. Mm -hmm. And those promises were not to him but to yourself. Yeah. And therefore I would reject the image that sometimes uh, advanced of the judge in that sort of situation as a kind of a benevolent father because he's not. Your father reminds you of promises to him. Uh, this judge reminds you of promises to yourself. So it's more like a modern-day coach or mentor, really, Joe. It was, yes, but with so many more, so much more power. Yeah. And that power is not naked, yeah. uh, but at the same time it's not veiled. We had a very interesting conversation at lunchtime, the judge and I, about whether, um, uh, about what, whether there was a difference between his use of uh, power, authority or process leadership. And he had a very clear view about how he works with the team of professionals that back him up, the legal, the social work, the probation and parole service, all of those services are present at the table. Yeah. And he has a very clear view of what he calls not triangulating. So he speaks directly to that person who comes before the court. And if anyone has a contrary view, that is not when they air it the team meets before and when the team meets the judge is merely one member of that team oh. it's very powerful and the communication was remarkable i think we need to borrow you over here joe <laughs> well, look i think you probably need to bother uh, borrow justice uh, judge roger <laughs> you know yes, he's a right. quite remarkable person perhaps we do but yeah. joe what 
uh, what can we learn from from you and from these experiences about everyday life? Because one of the things I wrote about in my book is uh, an island in paradise. In other words, we all live on our own island. It looks absolutely perfect to us, but we've all got a totally different island. In other words, a different view of the world. And so we are, in a sense, all communicating cross-culturally every day. So what would you say we can all learn from what you have uh, experienced uh, and managing our communication every day? I think the, the, the thing that is most beaten out of us in school, unfortunately, is our curiosity. Yeah. I think if we remain almost uh, curious in an almost childlike way, yeah. we will never run out of patience for the other person's story. And listening to someone else is the most powerfully transformative experience. You cannot go on believing that you are right and always right or even mostly right yeah. or, or the only person in the world who's got it right yes. if you listen to someone else and hear in it an implicit challenge to something you've taken for granted. Yes. So I think there is something in that quality of listening and exchanging, which is incredibly important and which without any sort of theoretical basis teaches us about the cross-cultural. That what I think of as normal, somebody else thinks of as absolutely ridiculous and what I think of as absolutely ridiculous is, is imperative for someone else and they will die defending it. Yes. Um, so I love the idea that as we talk uh, across this sort of gulf, across this otherness, we discover that we've got things in common that we didn't suspect and things that will possibly never be reconciled but which make us fascinating to one another and enlarge our understanding of the world in general and perhaps in this person in particular. So when I see a judge who's worked as hard as Roger Dive has to change the way he uses his status so that status isn't even an issue, so that he is there in this extremely powerful pose of the listening other, asking someone to say, how has the last two-week period been? Mm -hmm. Tell me about it. I really want to know. Mm -hmm. And when they say, well, you know, I had a bit of a relapse, and when he says, and why was that? And the other person says, well, my missus died. Something that person could not have walked in and announced. Mm. And he's then able to say, my deepest sympathy to you, David, or whatever it is. Yes. He can speak from the heart. Yes. Yet at the same time, be this powerful resource to people struggling with one of the most, one of the biggest issues. And there is a whole culture around drug taking, no doubt the world over, but certainly in Australia. Mm. Uh, and, and to see this person understanding and assimilating that world into his own conversation and making space for there to be change uh, and devising graduation ceremonies, which include lunch in his chambers mm. with the person who successfully completed all three phases, mm. is, I think, a cross-cultural miracle because he really is in a position where he and that other person are two people whose paths would otherwise never have crossed and whose life experiences are so different that they might just as well be, you know, a Sherpa from Everest 
and somebody from the plains of Afghanistan or the plains of New South Wales. And that's a very, very powerful story, Joe. And, and you know, what you're describing about really listening, which is not just listening in the sense that sometimes we're taught to listen, to look at people, to nod your head, but actually to listen again and again and to be curious enough to really drill down to what is the essence that this person is telling before you even begin to put your point of view across. I Sometimes in our training, I talk about fervent curiosity being more yes. important than specialised knowledge and the right and being yes. right and wrong. But that yes, word fervent curiosity, you know, you cannot wait to hear the real truth. That's right. Or the real story, the real you know, story, when people exactly. say, I don't know whether I should tell you this. Yeah. I always say, you know, you're really onto something. <laughs> yeah. Now, Joe, um, it's always too short, these podcasts, but I, you know, I think um, we've heard a, an amazing story from you about where you've begun your interest in cross-cultural communication, uh, bringing us around to the fact that we all are in cross-cultural communication every day of our lives. So I'd, I'd like to thank you very much for that. It's a pleasure, Jane. And I, I would add that we're in cross-cultural communication even when we speak the same language. Exactly. But Joe, is there is there one final thought or tip you'd like to give our listeners today? Probably, Jane, to leave them with your idea of fervent curiosity. I love that idea, perhaps coupled with the role of the naive inquirer. The naive inquiry and fervent curiosity. That's wonderful, Joe. So um, I thank you very, very much for your time this morning. It's been a real pleasure talking to you. It's a pleasure. Thank you, Jane. Thank you, Jane. Thank you for the opportunity.